pray together. Father, we, we, are, we are grateful today for your grace, for your love, for your assurance. Lord, we thank you that we can place our faith in you and you are able to accomplish everything that you said you would and even more. And so today, as we open your word, would you speak to us? Would you allow your truth to enter into our lives? And you would move us further in your ways. So Lord, I pray now that you would anoint my lips and that you'd use my life for your glory in these minutes and this time as we sit here today. Lord, we love you and we give it to you. In the name of Jesus, we ask. Amen. So um, as we get started today, I'm just going to do a little thing that's going to help me out. Are you guys good with that? Today, the title of the sermon, sermon is Beware of Deception, Mark 9, 30 through 41. Mark 9, 30 through 41 is where we'll be this morning. If you have a Bible, if you'd open there, there's one in the seat ahead of you. It'll also be on the screens as we go this morning. <clears throat> now, I don't know... Um, if you've ever been in this moment in your life where you, you, you've, you've been deceived, where you thought something was going to go one way, you thought that it was in, in this way, but it didn't work out right. So I'm the father of daughters, <clears throat> as you know, and so there's been a few times where my wife wasn't around on Sunday mornings. Now, Sunday morning is a time where I, I get all the children dressed, right, and we would go to church. And so when they were little, especially the two oldest, I would take them, and it got to be this thing that when Debbie was gone and I took them to church, that people were prepared for what the girls would look like when they entered into the place, and they would do their hair. And I, there was times where I, like, was bringing them in, and I, I truly believed, like, they look good. Like, their outfits, their bows, their hair, it looks good. One time, no joke, a lady brought clothes to change my girls into for me, Right? And so <clears throat> beware of deception, right? There's sometimes where we think we've got it all together and we've got it right, and we don't, right? And <clears throat> I'm reminded of that all the time. Even one time I walked downstairs, Kinsley was probably five years old, and I walked downstairs, I was dressed for the day, and she looked at me and she looked me up and down, and she goes, that ain't going to work, Dad. <laughs> right? <clears throat> beware of deception. So I try to look good, right? I got, I got a lot of women telling me if I don't. So... <clears throat> Um, so the disciples, we see this with the disciples. They're in, this, they're in this place where they're perpetually getting it wrong, where they're th they, they think they're getting it right, but they perpetually get it wrong. And what they need, and we see it, is they need a shift in thinking, and, and Jesus is perpetually nudging them toward truth to see things appropriately. Now, just on the front end of things, do you think it's possible for you in this room today, each of you individually, that you may have gotten a few things wrong, right? Is it possible in the Christian life that there are some things that you're living as though they are, they are the truth of all truths, yet possibly you've gotten it wrong? You know, one of the simple things that we know in the day-to-day, -day, it's true in religion and all time in history, that somewhere in us, we really believe that if we go to church we do the right things, 
then Jesus has to let me into heaven because my good will outweigh my bad. As much as maybe you hear it here, we, we say that that is not true. But there's somewhere in us that we perpetually get it wrong because our life really displays that's what we believe. Is it possible that we've got a few things wrong? So kind of getting into the text now, um, what was happened before this, so Jesus went to, on top of the mountain, he's 9,000 feet up, transfiguration happens, God reveals that this is my son, I'm going, to, I'm going to send him to the cross, he's going to die for the sins of humanity, it's this, this significant moment that the disciples say, man, let's just camp out here and live forever, this is significant, this is Moses-like, and in, in, in Moses seeing God, we need to camp out with God, and then they come down, and when they come down from the mountain, there's a, the disciples, the other disciples, that weren't there were trying to cast out a demon on their own. They didn't even pray about it. Jesus walks in the situation, and, and the guy says, can you, can you cast this demon out of my son? And Jesus goes into this dialogue with him, and we see the neediness of humanity and the brokenness of humanity and the need for God in the Christian life. And then Jesus does the work, and he is able to cast out this demon. And now the text continues in verse 30, 9 verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Verse 38, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward." Here in this passage, we see kind of three main sections as we walk through it. And the first thing that we see is Jesus displaying our need for redemption. So the first thing, if you're following your, your guides, is our need for redemption. He begins this with this messianic secret. This messianic street secret. And so as we see in verse 30, he's walking through this. He said, they went and they passed through Galilee and he did not want anyone to know. We see this over and over with Jesus. As he's, it's not the time for everyone to know because if everyone knew, right, they would come against him and the, the work, the appointed time for him to die on the cross would come in, in a way that was not the will of the Father. And so he's saying, keep this quiet. We're not going to talk about this right now. And so, and the other one, the other reason he was asking them to, keep it a secret, this is, you know, per Ryan Johnston's opinion, is because they kept getting it wrong. Uh, they didn't need to talk about it because they weren't going to portray it well. And so this messianic secret, there's this appointed time for the, the crucifixion to come. But now he's going to use this phrase, and he's going to say the son of man. 
Now, the Son of Man is this phrase that Jesus uses over and over. And, and so simply, one way of saying it is, I'm a human being. I'm Son of Man. I think all of us in this room, right, are sons, daughters of man, right? There's, there, he's a human being. So this is showing his, his earthly self. He was equally God. He was equally man. This is his humanity, and he's going to display this over and over. But this is also used in Daniel 7, 7.13. Read it another time. He said, exalted, speaking of the Son of Man as an exalted and heavenly man, veiled and unveiled. And so he's going to say the Son of Man, and then he's going to go into what the Son of Man must do. So the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying because they were afraid to ask him. So there's this prophetic statement of what was to come. And the prophetic statement of what to come was that Jesus Christ would be delivered into the hands of men. And we know that this comes to to be true in the Garden of Gethsemane, that he would be delivered into the hands of men. And in being delivered to the hands of men, that they would falsely accuse him in a kangaroo court. They would beat him. They would mock him. They would torture him. And we know the reason why was because Jesus would pay the penalty for our sins. The wrath of God was poured poured upon Jesus. There was a penalty that was paid, and Jesus' body was broken. It says, delivered into the hands of men, they will kill him. That Jesus would die on the cross for my sins, for your sins. That he would be crucified and he would breathe his last, hung on a criminal's cross for you and for me. When he is killed, that this actually happened, he would be, he would be placed in a tomb, and for three days he would lie in that tomb. And three days later, and he says it in this, three days later that he would rise from the dead. And see, this gospel message, it is the beginning and the end of the Christian life and of the faith. The reason of the Gospels isn't to give every little minute detail of Jesus' life. The meaning of the Gospels, each and every one of them, is simply to say this. The one who was prophesied in the Old Testament, he came. He manifested himself on earth. Jesus, God, incarnated himself in this world, and he died for the sins of humanity, but he did not stay dead. He rose from the dead. And see, in this message, this is where our peace comes by what he has done. I mean, I, to be honest, after Kay was baptized, it's like, all right, we're done. Everybody can go home, right? It's like this great moment of, of a proclamation that Jesus is worthy. At 82 years old, with still tears in her eyes, I can't believe that he did this for me. See, I think one of the ways we perpetually are deceived and get it wrong is somewhere we move after we come to Christ. We move from a place of feeling unworthy to a place of feeling worthy to a place of looking down. And it's what most people can't stand about religious folk. See, we are unworthy that Jesus would come and do this for us. See, the disciples, they're missing this over and over and over again. 
See, we have peace by what he has done because we have peace because, see, I don't stand on my own record. Kay, the reason she felt unworthy is she knows that she does not stand on her own record, but, but we stand on his record. I am saved by faith, not because of my faith. The object of my faith, Jesus, he is the strong one. He is the one who died. He is the one who exalted. He is the one that can pay the penalty for sin, not me, not you. And so the object of my faith is what saves me, not my faith, the object of my faith. Because, see, I can put my faith in all kinds of things. And anybody in this room, if I place my faith in you, I promise you will fail me because I have very high expectations. No, I don't. You will fail me. We, we will fail each other. If I place my faith in Buddha, right, Buddha can't do anything. If I place my faith in Joseph Smith, he can't do anything. If I place my faith in Muhammad, he can't do anything. But if I place my faith in Jesus, see, he can do something because he's not dead. He's alive and he's risen and he's seated on high. The object of our faith, he is the one who saves us. We place our faith on his record, not on our own record. See, my record condemns me. But his record and my faith in him, the object, it saves me. Church, have you placed your faith in Jesus alone? See, but in this, they, they miss it. They miss that he is a strong one. They miss what he's saying. And they missed it, and instead, they were filled with fear. And the reason they were filled with fear, maybe because way back, Peter said, no way, Jesus, you're not going to die on the cross. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And so they're like, man, I don't know what to say. He's going to call me Satan. Like, I'm just kind of nervous right now around Jesus. But, but there's also this thing. The reason they were filled with fear is because they were having the wrong conversation. They were talking about the wrong thing. And we see that down in verse 34. We'll talk about that in a minute. See, the disciples were paralyzed by fear. They didn't understand, and they were afraid to ask. I don't know if you find yourself in that place in this room, but maybe you've been in that place where you're paralyzed by fear. You don't know what to say, or you don't know what to ask. I'm telling you, don't let fear stop you. Every one of us in this room experiences fear at some level in our life. Maybe it's a fear of obedience, fear to be baptized, fear to share your faith, fear to, 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 to step into things, maybe even to do simple things like pray. You're afraid. You don't, you don't know what to do. I'm telling you, it's okay to be afraid, but, but it becomes sin when you let your fear stop you. We can't let our fear stop us. And what we see happen with the disciples, they are afraid to ask, and they let their fear stop them from moving forward with Jesus. See, the disciples missed it, and we see it again in verse 34. Jesus is talking about the greatest event in history, and the disciples are talking about themselves. Who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to be this? And as, before we judge the disciples extensively here, see, we need to stop talking about ourselves. We need to catch a glimpse of Jesus. See, we deceive ourselves. Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. We deceive ourselves in having the wrong conversations. And we do this all the time. And we do it like this. Well, my opinion's this. Well, my opinion's that. Well, my opinion. Who cares about your opinion? I don't. And Jesus really doesn't. 
And it doesn't matter where you stand on this or that, although it might indicate a little bit of where your faith is placed. Jesus is the right conversation. The one who died on the cross for your and my sins, said a few weeks ago, the one who stood in front of a Mack truck and took the blow for me that I deserved. The one who gave his very life for me. This is the one we need to be talking about. This is the one we need to be caught up in. This is the one that we need to be dialoguing about. Not me, not my opinion, not this, not that. We need to start having the right conversation, and that's Jesus. Sometimes it's hard to have that conversation because even that name coming out of your lips in certain circles, it becomes awkward. Just challenge you this press into the awkwardness. My life is awkward. I talk about Jesus all the time. People walk up to me and we're having a conversation at the gym and all of a sudden they say, what do you do? I said, I'm a, I'm a pastor. And they're like, oh man, I just cussed 14 times. <laughs> Feels so bad. <sighs> you know, the, the, the awkwardness and it's kind of like, okay, so when are we going to do this thing talking about Jesus? Because I know, I mean, they know that's coming, right? I'm a pastor. And so we're going to talk about that. I don't care if you cuss, that's up to you and God. But, but here's the thing, that, that, that Jesus, sometimes it's just an awkward conversation. But I'm telling you, don't let your fear stop you. Push through it because there's not a better conversation in the whole world to be talking about than the one who died and gave himself for you and for me. We, like the disciples, get caught up in the wrong conversations all the time. See, I could be really prescriptive of that and tell you what I think all those are, but I think right now in your head, you know the conversations that you're a part of, that you do, that are normative for you, and maybe God's asking you to change the script and to change the conversations that you have. They might be more Christ-exalting, and he might be the center of our conversations more. The second thing we see in verse 33 through 37 is, is, is our posture for life. He reveals our posture for life of how we ought to go about life and what we should do and how we should be, kind of the, the way in which we express ourselves to others. Now, some of you, including me, need to listen up on this one. Are you, are you with me here? Now, some, some of us really need to listen up on this one because we think the Christian life is about having the right answers, especially those of us in this room that are highly analytical, that, that really like to pick things apart. But Jesus is going to be clear over and over and over that the response to the gospel is servanthood to the least. The, the response to the gospel is lowering myself and serving the least. Our posture for life. So the setting, they, verse 33, he says, And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? Now this is this great. So they came to Capernaum. They were probably in Peter's house, so get a setting here. This is a place they went to often in Capernaum, and it would have been very comfortable for them. So they've kind of they've been on a journey. They finally kind of got home, and they're lounging around. They're kind of letting loose maybe a little bit. And in this, they have this conversation. And so Jesus asks the question, what were you talking about on the way? And they're like, oh, man, he's going to press us on this. I'm so nervous. This is like my kids. Like, hey, so what were you guys talking about in the room over there? And they're like, oh, man, we're so busted. 
Dad hurt us. What are we going to do, right? And then we, they, they get in, and this is where the disciples are. They're like, he's going to press into their fear. He's going to press into their silence. See, one commentator said about this question, and, and the reason they were unwilling to answer it, and this is like an old way to say it, and I love it. It says, they knew they had a canker in their hearts. I don't even know what that means, but I just love that. Like, I just know what a canker is in my mouth, not in my heart, right? This is this, they knew they had this, this, this poisonous thing inside of them, and now Jesus was going to press into their canker, right? He presses into this. And on the way, they had argued about, right, who was the greatest. And again, they're going to get pressed into this wrong conversation. Therefore, they were coming to the wrong conclusions. Therefore, their lives did not match the one whom they followed. They had, conversa- they had conversations, again, centered around themselves. We have conversations around ourselves, our wants, our desires, our likes, the people we dislike. We love to talk about people we don't like, right? It makes us feel better, right? That's, that's what we do. And why so, and, and, and how, <clears throat> how so kind of centered on themselves they were rather than the Savior, his sacrifice. And so Jesus is going to present now the inverted order of the kingdom. Now, hear this, the inverted order of the kingdom. He says, if, if you want to be first, you must be last of all. You must be a servant of all. And then Jesus is going to kind of bring an object lesson into the conversation with a child. And he brings this, this child in, the, the Greek word in this, when he brings the child in, he, he literally puts him in the crook of his arm and he holds him in a very intimate, in a very, very kind of intimate, authentic way of compassion, concern, and care. And what he's going to say, he says, again, whoever receives a child in mind, if... if <clears throat> So he, he moves into this object lesson, and this object lesson is kind of this lesson of reliance, affection, and rest. It says, whoever receives a child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. This concern and care and kindness to the most vulnerable, and that's really what this child was an illustration of. It would have been to one, now their society was different than our society because children were really the lowest rung of the totem pole, right? And so they, they, they pushed them far down. Children were not the highest, right? I was, I was somewhere this week and I was overheard a mom and she said, she said, baby, where do you want to eat lunch today? Do you want to go out to eat or do you want to go home? And I thought, that's kind of interesting. We don't really do that with our kids. And then she said, hey, baby, I brought four snacks for you, and there's a vending machine over there. Do you want one out of the vending machine, or do you want one out of my snacks? And I was like, no, we don't do that. Like, that ain't happening to Johnston House. And, and there's this kind of thing where we just kind of say, hey, kitty, what, what do you want? You're the, you, are the, you are the top, right, shelf. And really, in that culture, children were not at the top shelf, and maybe even wrongly, the bottom And so Jesus took one of the most vulnerable, one of the lowliest seen in society, and he brings him into himself. See, and and as he brings this vulnerable child in, he modeled, he modeled and displayed genuine character to the hurting, to the sick. He he did this throughout his ministry, to the hurting, to the sick, to the outcast women, and now children in this text. And, And deception that the disciples were facing is that position brought greatness and power came in titles. 
And Jesus is saying that, no, when you receive a position in me, you take a lowly position because one day you'll be exalted with me in heaven, but until then, you take the road I took as low. I humbled myself. I became a servant. I died on the cross, Philippians 2. Jesus is going to take a, a low road. To <clears throat> He's going to live his life as a servant, and this is a call to us. And I don't think that these texts are disconnected. Jesus is calling them to the gospel, calling them, telling them, this is what I have done for you. And now the response to that is, oh my goodness, Jesus did that for me. Now I am going to take the low road. I'm going to, I'm going to step down amongst and with, and I'm going to love the least and the most unlikely in this world. See, the concern and care and kindness now is reciprocated through our lives. So we see the posture of life that he's calling us to is to live as servants He's calling us to, to, he's showing us that he's done the full work for us. And then last, he'll show us our power for the mission. Our power for the mission to trust in the name of Jesus. Reading again, he says in verse 38, Jesus said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. I love this. There's, there's this position, the, the position of Jesus. This is teacher. This is this, the one who provides understanding. So they're saying, you're the one who provides understanding. Now, he says, but there was someone who was doing a work, but they're not a part of us. And this is the disciples again. They, they've, they've been deceived. They see themselves as the one who has exclusive rights to Jesus and the work of the ministry. And in this, this guy casting out demons. They say he wasn't of us. We're the guys. We're your dudes, Jesus. These guys aren't. What are they doing, doing work in your name? Notice it says that, in your name. So this man wasn't doing work in his own name. He wasn't, in this text, we take it as it is, it wasn't doing it for himself. He says it was in your name. And this is the key to this text. He's going to say it two times. In your name. Repetition highlights what the point is. And so the question for them was, who's in and who's out? Who's in and who's out? And it continues. Jesus says, do not stop him, for no one knows who does the mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. The position, again, of Jesus, he's the teacher. The disciples thought they had exclusive rights. They were wondering who's in and who's out, who gets to do this work of ministry. And what Jesus says is beware of casting judgment. See, this is not up to us who does the work. It is up to him. And it is the one who is doing the work. And he's calling us to love those who do the work of Christ in the name of Jesus. And so it's not about a denomination. It's not about a missions organization. But it's about people. And really what he's saying here is amongst the brothers, we should have greater tolerance for one another. I know tolerance is a word that we don't always like to use or some like to overly use it. But in this text... Uh, undoubtedly what Jesus is saying is that we should love the brothers and sisters better. We should be more inviting into those who speak and do the work in the name of Jesus. Now, just to speak into this for a minute, there are many people that we need to be cautious of, right, that are doing the work of Jesus in, in a way that does not honor him, 
that does not lead to salvation, that does not lead to hope, um, does not, and maybe is done in a deceptive manner, in a deceptive way. But there's much work that is being done in the name of Jesus for his name and for his glory. And we need to love those, right? He's saying love those who are doing that. So love those who do the work of the Christ in the name of Jesus. So people are going to serve. And then it says that then people are going to serve you because you belong to me. Honor them because I am going to honor them. See, the, the, power, the, the, the power for the mission is not in the disciples' position. It is not in any abilities that they have. It is in the name of Jesus and in his name alone. Now, I don't know if you catch the thread in this text. But the thread in this text is, is hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to be arrested. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise from the dead. And then they're going to have the wrong conversation and what Jesus is going to do and as they're having the wrong conversation to say, no, 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 your lifestyle should be a response to what I've done for you. You need to live your life as a servant because this is what I'm calling you to do. And then it goes into like doing the work of the ministry and he's going to say that this isn't in your name or in others' names, this is in my name and people that do it in my name, right, people who do it in my name honor them. So I don't know, the thread is this. See, this is all about Jesus. The beginning, the middle, and the end. Everything is about Jesus. And again, if you're going to get tired of me talking about Jesus at the North Canton Chapel, then you can go to a different church because that's what we're going to talk about around here. Because he is the beginning and the middle and the end. He's everything. He's my everything. He's a lot of folks around here's everything. Jesus is kind of the it, the middle, the beginning. He's, he's the whole deal. And whenever we start having conversations that don't center on Jesus and start with, well, I think, and this thinks, well, I don't really care. Jesus is the conversations that we must be having. His fame, his name being known in this world through my life, through your life, through our lives. Because undoubtedly, all of us in this room have a deep need for redemption. And we are completely unworthy to have been given redemption through the Son. Yet he has fully and graciously given us redemption. So maybe for you today, you've never given your life to Jesus Maybe it was a testimony in the baptistry. Maybe it says you sat and heard the word of God today. Whatever it is, maybe today would be the first day where you say, I need a savior and I believe. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me and I'm gonna place my faith and my full confidence in him because I believe that placing my faith, him, Jesus, as the object of my faith, that he is the only, only thing, only person that I can place my faith in that can fulfill what he said he would fulfill. I'm just telling you again, there's no other object of your faith that you can place in this world that'll come through with you, come through for you, but Jesus will. And I tell you that one on the authority of God's word, because I do not speak as a man up on the stage on authority of my own, but on the authority of word of God, I'll say that is true. But I'll also tell you by my own experience, the object of my faith has always come through. Even in the times where things didn't go the way I wanted them to. Jesus has always come through. He's always been beside me, and he always will, no matter what storm, no matter what trial comes. We have a need for redemption, and the full work done for us through Christ brings us redemption. Because this redemption comes, he gives us a new posture of life. 
And that new posture of life that he gives us is to respond in servanthood, respond in, in servanthood to the chief servant. Jesus came and he was the chief servant. He brought the most vulnerable into himself and he says, I'm going to love them and I'm going to care for them and I'm going I'm to bring them in close. He says, I'm going to step in and, I, and, and he's calling us to, to not be above anyone. No race, no body type, no economic status, no age, no color. There's no one in this world that I'm going to see myself above, but I'm going to lower myself below. And just so you know, for a bunch of white folks in this room, that's hard. I'm just going to say, we, we, we come, and if you're not white, praise the Lord, you're here, right? We want to be more diverse in our congregation because our Lord is. But what's hard is that we come, right, we're, we, we're in a dominant culture, so you know that, in America, and we're a dominant race, we're, we're a majority race in our country, and we often are positioned in the world and in our culture where our opinion matters the most and where we take high status. And I'm not saying anything else, but saying that sometimes is a barrier for us of taking the low road of servanthood and not seeing anyone, again, of any body type, age, Race, color, creed, I'm a servant of all. Why is it that we read stories about Christian missionaries who go into leper colonies and we say, this is unbelievable, why would you do such a thing? Because they went to where no one else would go. We read stories about in Rome when the plagues came, the Christians stayed and they took care of the most vulnerable and the needy. Why? Because they followed Jesus. They believed he'd redeemed them. They believed that there was life after this world. And they didn't have to bank everything that was going on around them on today because they knew there was an eternity ahead of them. So they let loose of everything. They let loose of their pride. They let loose of their ego. They let loose of everything. They said, I'm, I'm his. I'm redeemed forever. So I'll step into a leper colony. If I die a leper, I'll, I'll, be, I'll get a new body in heaven. I'm good. If I die at the hands of a martyr, I'm good. There's no one, no faith that has the track record of our faith and our Savior of people lowering themselves and saying, I'm not above anyone because I am. I am at, at the, the deepest place in my bones, a sinner undeserving of grace. And the highest of all, step down and serve me by dying on the cross. There is no one in this world that I'm un unwilling to associate with to love and to care and to come alongside of. Jesus clearly is calling us to be a servant of all. And I believe that as Christians, we've not always done well with this, but because of this, because of what he's done, we should be the most inviting and the most diverse because we are. Every tribe, tongue, and language Right, there are brothers and sisters. This should unite us, not divide us. Calling us to be a servant of all. Responding to the chief servant. And then he reveals our power for the mission to trust in the name of Jesus and to love the brothers and sisters who do work in the name of Jesus. So beware of deception of thinking this is about something else other than Jesus because it is not. And maybe you came in today, and you're in a place where you, you were living in a place of deception. Maybe you were making things about something other than they should be. 
Well, maybe God would give us the ability to repent of that today. Do you know that that's kind of the crux of the whole thing, repentance? It's kind of at this place in our lives being able to admit that, man, I haven't got it all together and I don't have it right. And I'll just raise your hand. I don't know if you'll do this with me. Like, I don't have it all together and I don't have it right. Are you there? Anybody? <clears throat> but Jesus does. And I can trust in him. And what I can do, though, every day of my life is I read his word, as I hear his truth, as I can redirect my life. And the way we redirect our life isn't by trying harder. But the way we redirect our life is the word. We see it over and over in scripture. It's repent. So we turn. We turn from our sin. We turn from the way in which we have been living and say, I'm going to turn, I'm going to go in a new direction. If you've never given your life to Jesus today, there's this act of repentance that you can make today that will forever turn your life toward Jesus and he will transform you. It says if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You can be saved today and you can repent of your sins and turn toward him. Now, maybe you've done that and maybe you find your place where he's redirecting you today. Well, you can repent today and say, Jesus, I know I'm saved. I know I'm with you. I know you've got me, but I haven't been centering my life on you. I've not been living in your power. I've not been living as a servant. Forgive me. You turn and walk in a new way. And just so you know, if you kind of get used to this Christian life, it just kind of becomes normal. And until I see him face to face, I'm probably going to be repentant of stuff every day because this guy is prideful at his heart. And I got stuff going on and my motives and things get, as I, we say in our house, they get janky all the time, right? I got I to turn. I got to move in a new way. Whatever he's asking you to do today, I pray that you'd have the strength to repent, to place your faith stronger in him because he is the one. When we place our faith in him, the object of our faith, he will never let us down. Let's pray. Father, we believe, we believe, Jesus, that you truly are who you said you are. We believe that you have done the work that we needed. We believe that work we cannot do in and of ourselves. We cannot redeem ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. We can't look to any other. Only you, Jesus. Only you have brought us what we desperately need. And so this morning, we pray that you would help us to place our faith, our full confidence in you, maybe some for the first time, and maybe some in redirecting of believing what is true and reorienting through repentance their life around your truth. Lord, we pray you give us faith. You give us strength to do so. Lord, we pray you'd move us maybe even to these altars this morning to repent and to pray for the first or again. Lord, help us to move, help us to respond. This I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll stand, and as we stand, we're going to sing, and we're going to sing a song called Give Me Faith. These altars are open for you to come and pray as God leads.